Dad Day. Day that we can talk about, and we've already heard a lot about what the kids think about you. Day that we can talk about our dads and their abilities. It's interesting, some listening to some of you in the last few weeks talk about some of your home and life experiences. Your dads could do this, dads could do that. How they had great abilities. And some of us, we had dads were, which were really gifted in certain areas. I had a dad who was mechanically gifted. I got none of that. But he was very, very talented with his hands, figure out things. My dad, he was an extremely hard worker. Very hard worker. He was a good disciplinarian. I know that. My dad was good. I, I saw him do it to the other siblings. So we can talk about and brag about what our dads did. It is interesting that Jesus did the same thing about his father. Even though they're part of the Trinity, he would talk about the Father. And one of the texts that I find very interesting where he talks about his Father is our Father who art in heaven. The Matthew 6 passage where we catch right in the middle of a sermon that he's preaching. He's speaking to a wide number of people. And he's going to, as he's going through his sermon, going to talk about his Father and how wonderful his Father is to them to help them to draw closer. So while he's doing that, he's talking about that, and in one of the sections that we're going to refer to is what we call the Lord's Prayer. And so he talks about his father in this passage in a very simple way, where we read down in verse 8 in Matthew 6, Be not therefore like unto them, which are the, the hypocrites, he's talked about verses before, for your father knows what things you have need of before you even ask. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's interesting what he does in this text. He's talking to these people and as he's talking to them, he's going to talk about prayer. What I find very interesting is these people were by comparison to us in our society, these people prayed a lot. These were mostly Jewish people who were listening to him. There was great crowds, as we talked about in the last months on Wednesday night. They came because of the miracles, mostly Jewish people. They're listening to Jesus as he's preaching this message in the first part of his ministry. And as he's preaching to these people, he's going to take time to talk about prayer, which is kind of ironic because these people prayed an awful lot. If you lived back in those days, you would typically, if you were an Orthodox Jew, you would face Jerusalem and pray three times a day. You would pray before lunch or sometimes before the meals, any meal. Sometimes you would pray during the meal, depending upon your family setting. And sometimes you would pray after. And sometimes you would do before, during, and after. Depends upon your family tradition. They would get together and they made it very common practice when the family got together, like on Father's Day if they had that, they would take a little bit of time of praying. When they would get together for feast days, they would have a time where they would pray. When they would get together on the Sabbath day for the synagogue services or if they'd go to the temple, prayer was a very important part of their, their worship, their activities. So as a whole, he's talking to a group of people that they prayed a lot. They prayed regularly. So why does he talk about prayer? Well, one of the reasons is he wants these people to continue that to the next generation. 
to continue that idea. One of the reasons he's doing it is there's groups of people within this large group who weren't encouraged to pray, who maybe thought they couldn't pray, who maybe felt like they weren't worthy of prayer. That would be the publicans, the sinners, those who were the non-Gentiles. And he's telling them they can pray as well. So in this passage that's so simple, Jesus is saying to the entire crowd of thousands, he is saying, every one of you, every single one of you, young or old, you can get involved with praying. And he's going to assume that they're going to because if you look at verses 5, 7, and 9, it starts off and he says, when you pray, when you pray, when you... He's assuming that these people as a whole are going to pray. And then he not only assumes it, but he commands it when you pray over and over and over and over. So he's really focused here on prayer. And as he's talking about this prayer, the idea that he wants to get across to them is, listen, you're going to pray. Make sure you pray effectively where its potential is really being filled. Do you remember how he says it uh, through James? He says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He wants them to have effectual fervent. He wants them to really pray. It, it reminds me of this idea that we assume most everybody knows how to swim, but there are some people who don't. We assume everybody knows how to ride a bike, but some people don't or they may not really be good at it. Maybe they know how to swim at, as to you know, keep themselves afloat, but they're not really good at it. Well, Jesus is assuming that this crowd that he's talking to, they're praying, but are they really good at it? Are they clumsy with it? And he makes it clear to them. He says, yeah, um, when some of you pray, you're not really doing it effectively. In fact, he's going to point out that some of them, when they pray, they do it for show. They're really good on praying on Sunday, but they don't do it during the week. They're really good praying when people come to visit at their house, but that's not their pattern. They're really good at making a display. And he talks about how they stand in public and great, great um, show and display so that everybody goes, ooh, wow, they know how to pray. But they really don't. Could that still happen in 2023? Could there be some people who come to worship who the only time they pray is worship here, but they don't do it. They do it for show. We hope not. But then there are some in this text that he says they're like the hypocrites who play, pray vain repetitions. I think you all know what that is. It is those canned prayers that some of us learned. You know, I learned different canned prayers that we were supposed to pray when I was a little kid. And to this day, I can still say them. And they're totally meaningless when I just say them because they're rote. They're just the canned prayer. Can we who are believers even get into praying the same thing ritualistically, habitually, and really not think why we're praying? He says, we don't want to do that. You know, the irony of the whole thing is the passage where he is saying to the people, don't get involved with canned prayers or ritualistic prayer or vain repetitions has become one of the most vain repetitions of prayers. The Our Father is so you and I might even ask, then why did Jesus give this prayer? You misunderstand the text. He wasn't giving them a prayer to pray. If you look at verses 8 and 9 very closely, he says, when you pray, pray in this manner. He didn't say pray this prayer. In fact, um, if you compare this passage where in Luke he records it and it says the same thing to the disciples in private, he tells them again, when you pray, pray our Father which art in heaven. In that text, 
It's very similar, but it's not the same. So which prayer did he mean to be the canned prayer? Neither. Neither one. That in itself proves he wasn't giving us words to say. He was giving us an idea of how to pray. Pray in this fashion, this manner, not these words. Because they weren't identical. So what happens here is Jesus gives them this example of praying. And he says that there are others who are praying for their much speaking. Now where I grew up, the church I grew up, that was really a part of our prayer. We would have beads that we would go by. We would at one time say so many Hail Marys. And then we would say in our Father, then so many Hail Marys. That was the vain repetition he's talking about, or one example of it, is just repeating or for your much speaking. The more you say this canned prayer, the more effective. That was very common back in those days. In the culture that they lived in, they taught that if you did certain mantras, certain phrases, over and over and over again. Do you remember in 1 Kings 19 when the prophets are in contest with Elijah? They are doing that. They are saying certain phrases over and over again. And as they don't get an answer, they get louder and louder thinking God's going to hear. As if God is deaf. So they want to get louder in their prayers and then they start losing loftier speech. And he says, don't get, don't get caught up in this, show, uh, this showy type of a prayer. Which we've seen that, we've experienced that some people, some places, sometimes for impressioning, impressing others to make a good impression, they might all of a sudden go into a whole different voice that becomes these and the thou's, and this high English. And I'm not saying it's improper for you to do if it's genuine, but it can happen for show. And he's saying, don't get caught up in that. And so he tells them, he says, okay, what you need to do is pray. And I find this to be a really convicting idea, that this most intimate time with God can be spiritually corrupted by us. Man, the most spiritual type of fellowship with God can be polluted. We, we can distort it and we can, we can ruin it. And he's going to say in this passage, you need to pray effectively. Now what he's going to tell them as far as praying effectively is something very simple in this text. He's going to say, number one, you need to do it. So for you to be an effective prayer person, do it. You may not say it quite as nice as somebody. Just do it. Just pray. Talk to God. But talk to him personally. Talk to him privately, where it's not just for show, but you go and you regularly, repeatedly have a prayer time where he's going to say, get alone with God. Doesn't say public prayer is wrong, but make sure you have private prayer. You get alone with God and then do it properly. And he gives them a fashion of coming with praise, coming with your requests, coming with, with a sensitivity of wanting to be right with him and that whole idea of, okay, you know, cleanse me of my sin. And what he's demonstrating to us in this text, the bigger portion is prayer is extremely powerful. Go over to just a few verses after this where he makes comment in chapter 7. Following up, he says, Ask and it shall be what? Seek and you shall. Knock and it shall. For everyone, that's you, 
that seeks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks. So he's given this idea of, of praying and encouraging it. He does it elsewhere. Whatsoever you shall ask. This is, this is given the night before he dies to his disciples. You guys, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do if you ask anything in my name. And again, in that same evening around the Lord's Supper, he says, if you abide me, my words abide in you. You shall ask what you will, it shall be done. Then when he's preaching one of his last messages in public, he says, all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Now, let me just, I need to pause and get, before I get into the heart of our message, I need to pause and remind you about something. This isn't Jesus giving you a blank check anything you want. God, I want a million dollars. He isn't saying this is genie in the lamp type thing. God, give me hair. Now, certain miracles aren't going to happen, okay? And so he's not saying it under this idea, and that's the pretext that people run with and say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. God didn't give me you know, a career where I could be done, start work at 21 and retire at 22. Um, you know, the context of this is given, ask what you will, seeking you, when you start off saying, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. It's in that context that as you're praying, you're not praying selfishly, but you're praying for the glory of God. You're praying for the will of God. And so in that context of him providing your needs, you ask what you will. And he's going to provide, guide, direct, strengthen within the context of glorifying him, understanding what he is going to give is what our needs are and that we want his will to be done. So prayer is powerful and it's possible for everyone in this room. Seventh grade to whatever age, 107. That should include all of us now. It is possible, including you. Now in that, in that setting... Jesus brags on God. And as he brags on God in the specific, what we call the Lord's Prayer, he is going to be telling us what he thinks about God and why we should be praying to God, our Father in heaven. And it's really encouraging when you stop and think, okay, prayer is great. Why should I do it? Why should I take time? Because, number one, God wants a close fellowship with you. God wants a real close relationship with you. He starts off saying, Our Father, which art in heaven. He's saying we can have that same type of intimacy with the Father in heaven that he had. Our Father. Now, there are some people who have been preaching for years who are preaching that while well, everyone sitting in this room, every church where they're sitting at, everybody driving on 22nd Street, everybody at Hershey Park today, everybody is God's child. There are preachers who have been preaching this for a long time. This idea we're all brothers, we're all sisters. Universally, everybody belongs to God and is in God's family. In other words, you don't need to be born again. You're already, just because you're a human being, you're going to get to heaven one day. Is that true? Is God the Father of all? There is one sense that there is a little bit of truth to that. When we look in the Bible, we understand that in the sense of father-creator, is he the father of all? In that sense, absolutely. Have we not all one father? Has not he created us? When we're talking about physical creation, we are his offspring. That he created Adam and Eve. And so through human generations, 
he really is the father of the human race in creating them. In that sense, that is true. But not in a spiritual sense. Not at all. Because the Bible makes it very clear that when it comes to the spiritual aspect of what family you're in, the Bible lays out in multiple different passages that there are two, two spiritual families here on earth. One of them is called the children of darkness. One is called the children of light. You're in either one. You're in either the, you're one of the children of darkness. You're one of the children of light. In other words, you're a child of God or a child of the devil. Now that's a scary thought. Could it be that I could be a child of the devil? And the answer is, we all were at one time. See, let me, let me be more specific with this. Let me point out that there are passages that Jesus said to the very religious leaders that he was dealing with who were standing listening to this. He says to them, you are of your father the devil because you're rejecting truth. He's pointed out elsewhere. He said, the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom but the tares, that which isn't planted by God, that which is going to grow weeds rather than fruit, they're the children of the evil one. Do you see what he's getting at? You could be a child of the evil one or a child of God. You could be a child of darkness or a child of light. He says to believers who are at one time in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. What changed? They became born again. And so what he's pointed out elsewhere is in this the children of God are manifest. And I'm going to show you how the children of the devil are. He says to the believers, you should show forth the praises of him that called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. Jesus put it this way. Jesus was preaching and he was making this comment to his crowd, the initial crowd, and he says as many, or John wrote about Jesus' initial statements, as many as believed on them, to, give, to them gave he power to become something they weren't before. They weren't the Son of God, but through his preaching and if they believed, he gave them power to become part of God's family, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood and of the will of flesh, but of God. And so he makes it very clear in the Scriptures, when we come into this world, because of our sin nature, we are in darkness. We basically belong to Satan. We're part of his family, his horde. And he wants to keep us there. But in order to become part of God's family, we need to have him birth us to become his child. And how do we do that? Do we do it by baptism? Do we do it by going to church? Do you do it by being a good child and celebrating Father's Day? No. You become a believer. You become born again. How? believing in his name. That's why he says you must be born again except you're born of the water and the spirit. A spiritual work. Not a work that you do, but a work that God does. You're not going to get into the kingdom of God. And he says very simply, just like you had a birth, there's a moment where whatever your day is, whatever that time was that you were physically born, there needs to be a day when you were spiritually born. When is, do you know that there's a moment, a day in your personal history where you called upon Christ to be your Savior? That you were born again and brought into his family out of Satan's horde, out of his realm. There has to be that moment or you don't see the kingdom of God. If you want to know more about that, after the service, we'll gladly show you. 
Somebody will make themselves available as we sing in closing. They'll be right by that door. All you need to do is walk, go over there. They'll take you into a private room down that hallway and show you from the Bible what you need to pray in order to be birthed into God's family. It's up to you. You don't join our church. You do nothing for us. This is what we want to do for you. Show you how you can be born again. And God in this text, Jesus is making it very clear. God wants this relationship with you. He wants to become your spiritual father. And once he becomes your spiritual father, he wants to have time with you. He wants to talk with you. And he invites you in private to come and talk with him. God wants close relationship, fellowship with every one of you. Why should we pray? Because the God of heaven wants us to talk with him. Any day, all day long, whenever we need, take our struggles, our battles. He is going to be there. He's not going to be preoccupied. He's not going to be too busy. He's not going to just say, leave a message, and not get back to us. He is going to be there and available to any and all of us. Why should we be excited about the fact that we can have fellowship with God? Because he wants it with us. He invites us to do that. But something else Jesus is bragging about, he is saying, not only is my Father inviting you to come and have fellowship, he wants you you and me to courteously revere him when we come to him. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What in the world is hallowed? What does it mean to hallow his name? The word literally means to lift it up, to set it apart to make it known, to promote his name. Now what's ironic about this is this is stated as a command. It's an imperative. You know, our Father which art in heaven, I command, hallow your name. Why is a subordinate commanding a superior in a command? Whenever it happens that way in the Bible, what it is, it's represented as, it represents a strong craving, a request, a strong desire that basically would read this way, help me please to lift you up, to glorify you, to magnify your name, not mine, to make your reputation, not mine. To leave a legacy about you, not a legacy about me. I don't need my name imprinted somewhere or on a plaque. I want your name to be on people's hearts. And so that's what he's saying when we're coming. And basically what he's telling us is when we come to God, we shouldn't be casual. We shouldn't be flippant. We shouldn't just come and just, you know, run run in as if we're talking to, you know, some high school buddy. Do you remember how when people went approach the Lord, when Moses came into the presence of the Lord, what was he told to do with his sandals? Why? He, the ground is holy. When, when Isaiah says, he gets this vision in Isaiah 6, and he's in heaven, and the angels are proclaiming, holy. Yeah, it's the same thing. This is an easy thing to learn. Holy, holy, holy. What does Isaiah do? He says, I fell down as a dead man. When Daniel sees a vision, he doesn't see God himself. He sees one of God's angels. He fell down as if he had absolutely no strength. When John sees this vision of Jesus in heaven, he falls down as a dead man. When people come into the presence of God with reverence, they understand who they are. They're not much. He is everything. 
We are unholy. He is holy. We aren't great. He is all powerful. And there's a respect. There's a reverence that we're supposed to have. I'm not saying that we're supposed to be liturgical or mechanical, but when we come to the Lord in this fellowship, let's remember this is a privilege that we don't deserve. He invited us in to come and talk with Him. And for Him to listen to us in our prayer closet, this is a great, great, great honor that we get an audience with God Almighty. And so He says, come with it. And appreciate God. Hallow Him. Lift Him up. Okay, so this week we wanted to get away for a couple days just to get a break in things that are going on this summer. And so we went away and to get a break and to just enjoy ourselves, we took the grandkids with us. Why are you laughing? So we took them to a special getaway place and one of our daughters joined us and so um, we had four of the ten grandkids and we were together. And we took them to a special place that they were so excited about. And one of the times while we were there, one granddaughter came up and she said, Papa, you're the best Papa in the whole... By the way, I'm the Papa. Okay. Just so you understand where this comes from. Papa, you're the best Papa in the whole world. What did you say? You're the best Papa. Say it again. Say it again. Deb, do you hear what this child is saying? Did you hear? And then... You didn't say it, but I thought you were going to say, what did you bribe him with? Now, how, do we, how does God feel when we pause and we say, you're the best? I mean, seriously. We appreciate, and, and we're doing it in a humble sense. We can joke about it, but we do appreciate when somebody comes up and says, you're the best mom. You're the best grandma. You're the best papa. You're the best, you know, whatever the kids call you, Okay. Um, grandma, you're the best wife. You know, I never hear this, but you're the best preacher. That would, you know, don't do it, don't do it. That's just, I'm joking about When we get those compliments, expressions, we appreciate them. When's the last time you said to the Father in heaven, you are amazing? Instead of, I need this. I need this. And, and he wants to get, hear our needs, but do this, do this, do this, do this. When's the last time you went and courteously revered him by saying, you are amazing. You are, you are wonderful. You have done so much for me. You have, and when we sing, there are times that we are just saying the words and not from our hearts. Does God want us and would he appreciate from us a thank you? The answer is, absolutely. So why don't you go to him in prayer and say, thank you? Why don't you go and express to him what Jesus is expressing here, that our greatest goal in life is not to have things. He doesn't say things are wrong. He'll even tell us to pray for things. But what is the first thing that he tells us in prayer that should be our focus? Magnifying ourselves? Having things? Making a reputation for you and me? No, he says the very first thing we should be focused on is our Father which art in heaven. Hallowed be you. Let me lift you up. Let me magnify you. Let me elevate you. That's why we were purchased. 
That's why the Spirit lives within us to help us to magnify Him in everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do. Do all to the... Not to ourself aggrandizement. Rather, He created us for His pleasure, for Him to be magnified. And when we pray, He says, Come, this is a way you can glorify me. This is a way you can thank me. So come and make this your primary focus when you pray. Come in this close fellowship. You know, there's a story. I'll give you two of them. George Washington. George Washington has the initial uh, troops there in New York City. General Howe is coming with a vast navy at the beginning of the battles of the Revolutionary War. General Howe wants Washington to surrender. This is the very beginning of the conflicts after Lexington and Concord, but when the, right before the first battle of the colonial army and the British army is going to take place. And so General Howe wants to intimidate and say, and he's got this huge fleet of ship out in the New York Harbor, and he sends a letter to George Washington telling him that they want to come to terms. So let's talk and let's, we can just not have war if we just come to terms. He sends a letter, but he addresses it George Washington. George Washington gets the letter, gives it back to the courier and says, send it back. It's not addressed appropriately. He sends the next letter, Mr. George Washington. Washington sends it back. What is Washington wanting them to do? He wants them to put down general and acknowledge that they are an independent group. And he rejects the letter a third time because what is Howe doing? He is purposely disrespecting the position of Washington. Same thing happened with um, Lord Nelson. He defeated the French fleet and when they had been, he had defeated the admiral, the story comes out of history that the admiral from the French navy came on to the British fleet to surrender and when he came up his first gesture was to do this. And Nelson stepped back, put his hands behind him and he said, first the sword, then the hand. What was he asking him to do? Surrender, show respect. You've been defeated. You need to give your all, and you need to respect me, not glad hand me. How many times have you gone to prayer and glad handed God? Just flippantly jumped in there without giving courteous reverence. And Jesus says, hey, listen, God wants us when we pray, and He will take care of us if we do. Continually relinquish everything to Him. Thy kingdom come, thy. What's that all mean? The kingdom come could be several things. It could be bring your physical kingdom here to this earth that you promise you're coming back. And you wouldn't mind if Jesus came back, would you? Would it be okay if he came back and set up his kingdom and you didn't have to go to work tomorrow? Would that be okay? If he replaced, I won't say names, if he replaced everybody in Washington, would you mind? Okay. So that's one aspect of a physical kingdom. There is also an aspect in Scripture of a spiritual kingdom inside the heart where he talks about some text. He says the kingdom of God is within you being born again and that kingdom of God comes by us repenting. There is also this idea of kingdom come could mean you surrender. You turn the sword over. You are saying, God, I'm relinquishing everything to you. Now that's in the Bible as well. 
where Jesus makes it clear the kingdom isn't just food or drink physical, but it's rather you yielding to the Spirit of God in righteousness and joy. That's the same thing that he said about seeking first. You, you saying his kingdom first and then he'll take care of all these physical things. It's the same thing that he has in the message of Romans 12. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God do what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And so this idea of surrender to Jesus is, is possibly in the mind. Which would fit his next phrase. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We understand God's will is done in heaven. And so the idea is do we surrender and say, God, we want your will. If that's to happen, you need to know the will of God. That's revealed in the word of God. You need to be yielding to the spirit of God. But it's a basic concept of saying, I surrender all. I give up. And if you don't, maybe you'll end up like Japan. When Japan got the, the ultimatum from the big three, basically, that, that you have Churchill and Roosevelt from the United States and Saul, and after the Potsdam ultimatum, they sent a message there to Japan. Germany had been recently defeated, and they send this message to the Japanese leadership, and they say, we want an unconditional surrender. Their prime minister... He responded, their foreign minister responds, and in his response, he uses a word, mokusatsu, which could be the idea of no. It could be the idea of we're thinking about it. Historians now in retrospect, they understood that what he meant to relay to the, to the big three in that response was not yet, we're thinking about it. Give us some time. It was interpreted, and some claim erroneously, absolutely not. And what was the result within days? Two of them. How many times have you, and God knows your interpretation, have you said mokusatsu to God? And then you say, well, he should bless me. I know he wants me to be baptized, but mokusatsu. I know he wants me to work on my marriage later. I know that he wants me to be a witness. I know he wants me to make reconciliation, forgive, get over this issue. I know he wants me to listen to my parents with respect. He wants me to work on my marriage by being submissive or being the leader. Friend, God wants us to relinquish. And this Father in heaven that we're invited to come and talk to, that deserves our worship, that Jesus is bragging on, he is saying, if you do this, you can completely rest in me. The rest of the prayer, basically what he's going to do, is he's going to say, I will take care of things for you. I will deal with what you think is really important. If you have a relationship with me, if you're yielded to me, I will handle things. In fact, in this text, he clarifies what he'll do for us. In verse 11, what does he say that he would do for us? If via the prayer, what should we pray for? Give us our, this day our... What's that mean? God will take care of our needs. He knows our needs even before we know our needs. What does he say in verse 11, uh, verse 12? What is he wanting to do for us? What is he willing to do? He invites us, come and bring this before me and I'll take care of it. What do you have in verse 12? 
Forgive us our... Is he talking about your mortgage? Your car payment? Your student loan? You don't have to worry about that. What's he talking about these debts? Sin. If you come before me, I will take care of your sin. So you can have that peace and joy inside. And then he makes it very clear as he goes on, I'll take care of all your needs. There's a story that's told about, true story about this painting that was done for the prodigal son. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? He'd run away. At the end of the story, what does the dad do when the son comes home? He runs down the driveway and meets the son. And he says, we've slaughtered the calf. Let's celebrate. This painting was, was uh, financed by a man. He saw the painting and the painting was beautiful and he was ready to pay the painter for the painting and then he noticed something in the picture that was really odd. He noticed that the father had on two different colored shoes and he was aghast. Why would you paint this dad with two different colored shoes? You ruined the painting. He doesn't look proper because he has... T- I mean, do you normally wear two different colored shoes? doesn't normally happen. The painter had a reason to do it. Do you, anybody want to guess what it was? You got it. I wanted to show that the dad was in such a hurry to restore his son, he just put on any two pair of shoes. Is God, is God like that? That he really wants to forgive you? The answer is, but where do you get forgiveness? You've got to come in prayer. You gotta come and pray to him. And when he does it, it's amazing. There's there's a true account that Moody told about about a man named Reuben Johnson. He had been put in prison and he was given life sentence. Not execution, but life sentence. And he had been serving up to his nineteenth year. And some ministers had gone to the governor there of Illinois and they'd said, Why don't we do this to just show compassion and mercy as a community? Why don't we give a pardon? would you give a pardon to five prisoners that have been basically changed and they are outstanding and give them another lease on life? The governor agreed. And so they chose out of the prison system, there was like a thousand men that that they initially chose that they would review, and then they got down to five. And so the governor's representative came to the prison that day. They had dozens of those men there in this room and he read off the pardon that they were going to be totally, totally uh, um, forgiven of all and released on their own recognizance. No type of of follow-up. They would be totally pardoned. And so the ministers were there and especially the one who had strongly encouraged them to consider Reuben Johnson. He was there. And he said, this man has really changed. He's been repentant. This man is shown to be just a a changed character. He'd come to know the Lord and all those things. And so they're reading off the names. And when they read the first name, the guy cheered and ran up on the platform to get his pardon. And he was so excited. Then they read Reuben Johnson. Nobody moved. Reuben Johnson. Nobody moved. Reuben Johnson. Nobody moved. Reuben just kept on looking around like all the others. And the clergyman who was over it a little bit said, Reuben, Reuben, that's you. He just, he didn't expect it. And all of a sudden, when the clergyman got up and walked over and said, Reuben, that's you, he couldn't get up. He was so emotional. 
he lost his strength to be forgiven, to be released. That's you and me. That's what we get in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing that God would say, come before me and I'll forgive you. And then even after that, if you still struggle, I will help you. In fact, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That idea is, I will protect you from the evil one, even as this is the father we worship this morning. He wants to provide. He wants to pardon. He wants to protect us. And the way we get that is we come to him in prayer. But some of you aren't doing it. You're leaving the gift right there every day. You're missing out. This God, think this through as we wrap up. This God over all creation, totally ruling in heaven, whatever his will in heaven, he deserves all glory, all power. He deserves our surrender. He knows all about us, even our strengths, our weaknesses, our past, our sin, the things that nobody else knows. He knows our future, what we're going to have need of. He knows everything about us. And yet, despite that, he wants time with us. He cares for us. He'll provide for us. He'll help us. He'll protect us. He'll keep us from the evil one. He'll forgive us as needed. He hears us. He will answer our prayers when we call. Like he did in the Old Testament. When Eliezer prayed and said, I need direction for a wife for Isaac. Like we have when Jacob is struggling with the angel and saying, please give me strength and bless and help me to be reconciled to my brother that we haven't seen for 20 years and we, we parted with hatred. It, it's, it's like Joshua saying, God, please help us. What has gone wrong here at Ai? And God revealed that to him to help them. Hannah praying, give me a son, give me a son. We have the prayer request where David is saying, please change the counsel of Ahithophel to bad counsel so that my son, he just puts himself in a real bad spot in this rebellion and he'll be defeated. And Absalom did, by the grace of God. Where the, pre, uh, the, the kings would pray, we're under attack, please bless. And Hezekiah says, please God, help us. And a death angel comes that evening and destroys 180,000 of the enemy army. Like the time when, when you have um, uh, Mordecai praying and saying, God, please, under, uh, under uh, uh, what's the word? Take out from underneath uh, Haman, Haman, his power and his authority and just, you know, circumvent all that he's doing to destroy the Jews. Like Nehemiah, when he comes before the king and says, help me to find favor in his sight so I can get some time off. Or like when the, when the saints gather together and say, hey, Peter's in jail. Please get him out of jail. Or like one of our missionaries just recently who was here. They, were, they had surrendered themselves to go into Bible college to minister, to learn about, about missions. And as they went, they left their house behind. And so they needed to sell their house, and it wasn't selling. And so finally the young man said, as he prayed about it, he said, we're just going to sell it for exactly what we paid for it. His dad was taking care of it back home. And his dad said, well, no, why don't we hold out? And the son said, no, just sell it for what's left on the mortgage. I just want to be done with that because I'm going to be trusting the Lord to provide. So they sold it. But then the next week, they got a letter from the bank that said, you owe $25.76 on the closing costs of your part of it. And we need it immediately or it's not going to close. 
the problem was they only get paid every other day. They had absolutely no money. None. Zero. No change, no nothing. But the bank needed that money. His dad said he, they need it within the next 24 hours. You got to get the money to him. And so he says, Lord, you got to provide. He goes to the mailbox. They, they did this in days gone by. They'd send letters at college and put them in the mailbox. And he went down there and he opened it up and somebody several days earlier had sent him a check for $25. Oh, he was so excited how God had known this and God had had somebody send a check the days before already. And he goes home and he tells his wife, we got the $25, we can do it. She says, but we still need 76 cents. We're still short 76 cents. So they went to the dresser and they're pulling out, they're looking in their you know, knick-knack boxes and he pulls out the checkbook again and he said, we sure we added this right. And sure enough, they hadn't. They had made a mistake in their checkbook. They were off by, anybody want to guess how much? 76 cents. They were off. So they wrote the check. And his wife said, we're so excited, we're so excited. This God, we just saw the hand of God provide so specifically that amount. It was so exciting. Then she looked at him and said, but what are we going to eat for the next three days? We still have three days for a payday and we don't have any more food. So they said, it's a good time to fast. So that night they fasted. God take care of things. Just help us to be wise. The next morning he goes to his first class and a professor walks up to him and says, hey, I'm not supposed to tell you who gave this to me to give to you, but here's an envelope somebody said that they wanted you to have. And inside was a $10 bill. Back in those days, it bought enough food to get by. Okay, They could get at least one Big Mac. Does our God provide? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. We need to stop and pause on Father's Day and say, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. 